Thank you all for checking out this week's episode. Once again, I'm John. If you like what you heard and saw today, subscribe to our YouTube channel, find us on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter, and check out our brand new merch store with hats, coffee mugs, t-shirts, other cool stuff coming down the pipeline. Again, thank you all for support. Be safe and see you next week. How's it going, everyone? John here, the host of Spear Talk, and today we get to welcome the incredible Christopher Strum to the show. Uh, Christopher is a U.S. Marine and a retired sergeant of the NYPD Intelligence Division. He's also the author of the incredible uh, Brooklyn to Baghdad. Uh, Christopher, awesome to have you on the show today. Thanks so much for having me, John. It's a pleasure to be with you. Uh, I know kind of we were talking before uh, we went live here and stuff. You do a lot of stuff with Newsmax and always do with those live interviews. I'm always kind of curious, someone like you that's got this this incredible background with everything you do, which we're going to talk about, how difficult is it to kind of put yourself out there like that where it's like, you don't know what kind of questions coming or you don't know how to like where it's something where it's in real time. You know, it's, it's like anything else. It comes with practice. I think the first few times I did it, I was incredibly nervous. Uh, I think the idea behind it is not to overthink it uh, and actually listen to the question and just respond to it honestly. And I, you know, I, and, and try not to appear as if you're the smartest person in the room, because clearly I'm not. Uh, and I think that goes a long way with people. I think people relate to that. Is it difficult if you if you're on one side of the spectrum and then there's another quote unquote expert on the other side of the spectrum? And I don't mean that in a good or bad way. It's just someone that whatever they think is they put the time in all that. Is it difficult to have a conducive discussion in that setting, if both people are really set in their ways where you're not really convinced the other person? Or is, are those situations kind of concocted where it's, hey, put this out here for the viewer and let the viewer decide how they want to interpret or read or kind of understand something? Yeah, I think that's a great question. There's been many times, you know, listen, I'm conservative in nature. Uh, I'm not changing my point of view. I'm, I'm not adversarial, obviously, if I get on a panel and things. But at the same point in time, they're bringing me on from my point of view, whether or not I agree with the other person that's on the panel. Um, I try not to make it personal. Uh, you know, I see sometimes when I'm on different shows with other people, um, again, I don't think I'm the smartest person in the room, but I wholly admit that. And I don't talk about things I don't know. And I certainly don't uh, discuss an experience that's phantom that I've never had. So I think I'm pretty well grounded. I think people, you know, relate to me for better, for worse. And I think debate is important. I think that's what's lacking right now in this country. We, we can't have an honest debate. And again, that's just human nature. We're not always going to agree on things in life. But if we're not willing to listen to the other person's point of view, well, it's almost like a husband and wife having an argument and they never want to talk again. Like, well, how are you going to fix this problem if you don't have an honest debate and hear the other person's point of view? So I think for me, I think that's been helpful. I think also... Uh, my age plays into that. I mean, how I am now at my age uh, and I'm in my 60s uh, is clearly not the way I was when I was in my 20s. So hopefully I've grown up a little bit and I've matured a little bit and become a little bit um, you know, more reasonable and listening to other people's uh, perspective. The last two years, uh, especially outside the pandemic, the number one thing for me, at least I've seen out there, was this whole movement to defund police and 
it's interesting now to all the people that were saying, "Hey, it's not really the smartest idea." Well, they're they're being they're now they're true because you seeing the reverse effects of what you when you take away law enforcement, the retire early retirements, the people not be able to recruit to get to the job, and so for someone like you that spent so many years in the NYPD, uh, iconic police force, like it's one of the toughest cities to work in with the politics and everything involved. Could you imagine yourself today doing what you did back then in this? this current environment like how would you what's your mindset if you were a 22 year old in the police force today there and you want to you want to give your life to the police force and are you kind of thinking man is it really worth it for me i think that's a great question and i think in relative terms uh i don't think i could survive uh going back knowing how i was you know speaking about my maturity level and being fresh out of the marine corps and my level of tolerance for people just doing stupid things and getting in my face and things like that. I, I think uh, I wouldn't be able to survive. I think also uh, with the advent of the uh, body cameras, you know, initially I, I wasn't for that. I thought that was going to be uh, the end all uh, and the demise of the NYPD. But to be honest with you, I've come the other way and come to realize that it's a, it's a very critical tool to have because otherwise what ends up happening is uh, I'm sure you're aware of, they show 15 seconds of what happened at the very end uh, where somebody's being yes. taken into custody. And unfortunately, for better or for worse, it might, might have been a violent confrontation or the person wasn't compliant. But they don't show what the person did prior to that. And so now, I, again, I'm, I'm coming back to the body cameras. I think it's great because there's no more one-sided story of somebody who is randomly walking by uh, on the streets of New York City just filming the police at their worst as opposed to filming them every day when they're at their best helping people. Right. So I think it's a great idea. How, when I went through the secret service stuff, like I remember the recruitment process was all this shoot guns, drive, learn how to survive this stuff, work the rope lines and work with world leaders and security and all this cool stuff. And there was obviously discussions about uh, like retirement, how to take care of your funds and stuff like that. But it's almost like, if I had to, if I had to go back now and restart this process today, you'd almost have to spend half the time worrying about the media, how to deal with the media perception, how to deal with it. Just it just seems like from a recruitment standpoint, and you can see by numbers. I don't know what uh, city it was posted the other day. It's like exponentially they they're losing more people every week than they're getting in. And it's like how do you recruit a new girl or a new guy today to be like you know what? screw what the media is telling you like sure there are some bad people out there whatever we obviously talk about that but if you want to serve your community and your state wherever you could do that but like how do you get those kids to want to be a cop again because for me growing up it was outside the military it was like the coolest thing stop bad guys and be a hero and now i look at that and be like oh, maybe i'll be a doctor or maybe i'll just hide <laughs> in a cave because i want to get away from everything yeah, it's, it's challenging. There's no getting around it. Um, you know, if I'm to be honest, my son, uh, he just actually graduated from ODU with a, with oh, a awesome. bachelor's in uh, criminal justice. And so the thought was, you know, law enforcement. Um, I don't know if he was going to go to the NYPD. Of course, when it's your kid, you support them in any direction they want to go. Um, but being if I'm again, as I say, if I'm going to be honest, uh, New York City is not where I would want him to go, period. Uh, not now. Uh, this new administration has got some problems and some challenges, and I, it's really stemming from leadership. And again, I don't want to be political about it, but I'm just trying to be honest about it. 
the climate in New York City uh, for police is very challenging. Conversely, places like Texas and Florida, they're very receptive and they seem to have a, a better appreciation for law enforcement. So if, if he wanted to pursue it, uh, that's what that would be my suggestion. But again, ultimately, it's up to him what he wants to do. In terms of recruitment, I mean, I love the police department. I, I had a great experience. I worked with some of the most amazing people. Uh, I have some of the best relationships with these people, even to this day. And I'm retired since 2007. And I talk to these people on a daily basis, whether it's social media, an actual phone call, or we get together several times a year and we make the effort to, you know, do buddy checks and check in on each other. And, you know, we love each other. It's like, you know, it is an extended family. Um, how does that translate into a, a recruitment? I mean, like in the NYPD, again, I'm just using that as an example because I'm most familiar with that. There are so many different things you can do in the NYPD. Pick a, a field of study or a discipline and it's there. Now, the ability to get there in, in a timely manner is probably better than most police departments. And the reason why I say that is because there is such a heavy turnover in the NYPD. So right about now, I would say there's probably at any given time, anywhere from 100 to 200 people retiring every month from the NYPD. So that creates a void. So as people retire, vacancies become available for that specialty unit, whether it's crime scene, highway, um, homicide investigations, you name it. So uh, again, the NYPD or any other big major metropolitan police department, if I was a young person thinking about a career in law enforcement, I would go to a bigger department versus a smaller department, only because the, the chances of lateral promotion and lateral movement is, is greater than a smaller police department. One of the interesting things in your book, and the whole book is insane. It, it, it actually feels like, I love the show Homeland, and it feels like this is like a real, like this is the real thing. Obviously it is. And the, you talk a lot about, obviously the NYPD and like the interact, what happens when the towers hit 9-11. And it's, I find it very interesting how, how one singular event affects people differently, whether it's they, they change their, how they, they perceive their life or what they do for a career or thoughts or views on certain things. And for someone like you to, once that happens, like, did you ever envision that you do all this traveling and stuff, all these different countries in the military, you come back to New York City, and then here you are going back out to different countries, Iraq, Afghanistan. And it's like, was it a full circle moment for you? Like, what what was that that nail on the 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 hitting the hair the hammer on the nail where you're kind of like, I need I I'm still not done traveling and doing what I need to do to help others. Yeah, it's a great question. Listen, you know your your prior law enforcement secret service. I mean, just because you're not active on that particular job, whether it's secret service or the NYPD, you never stop becoming a cop. You know, uh, generically, uh, you never stop looking at people, looking at situation. You know, your antenna or situational awareness is always up. And I was kidding myself when I retired. I really thought that I could just move to Roanoke, Virginia in the Blue Ridge Mountains and do, do construction and be happy. But the reality was uh, that I couldn't do that. And uh, then, of course, what was happening in Iraq uh, with the soldiers being killed primarily by IEDs and EFPs from Iran, I was getting angrier and angrier by the day. And I was just looking at it like there's got to be there's got to be a way to fix this problem. And you know, fortunately for me, I applied to a couple of different jobs and I ended up getting recruited by JIADA, which is the Joint Improvised Explosive Device Defeat Organization. Nice acronym. Army loves the acronym. 
Yeah. And so does DOD. And um, they approached me and said, you know, would you be interested in going to Iraq and looking at this from a law enforcement perspective? And I was like, oh, my God, are you kidding me? <laughs> I'm like, I'm in. So uh, so that's kind of like how my life came full circle. And again, you when I got over there and you start working with these young people, uh, the the adrenaline rush and the and the excitement of watching these young people, these young soldiers, um, guys and girls work is a very contagious uh, and infectious type of feeling. And you feel like you're you're a mentor to them and you're helping them and they feel good about themselves in terms of what they're doing and their commitment to uh, helping save save lives of their brothers and sisters over there. I've always I've obviously, as you're well, the United Nations they always do that thing in the fall where all the world leaders come in New York City and everyone's, it's just annoying. I did that for numerous years. Obviously, you're well aware of that your time there and how the government works with the local police and stuff to facilitate that. And after the first couple of times, even after the, the very minimal IED training I had at Fletzy and Beltsville, Maryland, I'm blown away that there's not more explosions or attacks or it's like but as you watch the nypd and not to get into specific tactics and like how people check this stuff but like with the canines and the checking the vehicles and stuff like that you bring in like the military uh eod units and it's it's crazy how we in a city like that where that stuff's not happening more often but then when you take that to like iraq or afghanistan like there are kids building these roadside and it's it, for me, it, it's just super surreal. Like your thoughts where it's like after the, t the planes hit and all that stuff and that all, all that stuff. And obviously there's been other terror attacks on us soil and you go over there. It's like, how do you mentally prepare for that? Like, are you ever worried that why like this stuff isn't happening more in the U S yeah, I am worried about it. And um, you know, I'm very passionate about, uh, the NYPD Intelligence Division, um, I've said this many times in, in many different interviews, uh, the NYPD Intelligence Unit, in terms of human intelligence and counterterrorism uh, counter strategies, is bar none the premier in the world. If anybody wants to debate that, I'm happy to have that conversation. Uh, and just for your audience's benefit, uh, and I'm not sure if you were aware of this, John, there is an NYPD detective and a sergeant, and sometimes two of each, in every major city around the world, living there full time, uh, joined up with the host nation, host cities, intelligence uh, service. And the reason why we do that is because people that were in charge of mining the shop, I call it, so to speak, uh, pre 9-11, which there was an attack on the World Trade Center, as you know, in 93, and then obviously in September of 9-11, um, we're, we're not waiting for that information. We're getting it in real time. So the same mechanism and the same methodology that's happening in New York City where there's an event or, or, or a threat or whatever, people respond, that was my job. I ran the counterterrorism leads desk uh, for the last five years. Only four people did that job, counting me. There's 5,000 sergeants in the NYPD. So I'd like to think I was competent in my job, but I'll let others decide whether or not I was effective. And the, the, the reason why we have these people all over the world, getting back to my original statement is, What's happening in New York City and what's happening abroad in any major city, whether it's Europe or Asia or, or a Middle Eastern country, that person is now reporting on the phone back to the main Intel headquarters in New York City. And we can reflexively respond to that type of threat and start doing mitigation right away. So, for example, you know, uh, there was a, 
uh, an unfortunate subway and uh, surface bus uh, event in England, uh, I believe it was 2005. So, you know, I work the lead stacks. I'm in charge of eight detectives. My phone goes off and I'm at home. It's actually my day off. And they're like, Chris, we need you to respond and go to the 6-6 precinct. They're holding a guy that was on the subway platform. And I don't want to make it a long story, but basically he was videotaping trains coming in and out of stations, which made people very nervous. And in combination of what had just happened over in England. So I debriefed the guy and lo and behold, he's a bad guy. Uh, he's from Egypt. He's here on a student visa, but he's not enrolled in any school. And uh, he's got some interesting pictures on his phone. I'm not going to get involved in what the pictures were and what the video captured, but um, he's now, he's now uh, on the radar, so to speak. He's, he's in the queue. What that's one of my questions. I, mean, I just got so many now, but one of the the central questions I had was when an explosion goes off and you have to, whether it's a certain chemical used or a compound or a detonation or the intel you gather, the, the, the research and the actual notes and stuff you take, when that gets submitted, now that goes into what you kind of you're talking about. Everyone kind of reaches out, goes into the central hub of this intel. But when, say, say six years down the line, another thing goes off and it's tied to possibly this guy that was filming stuff or a family member, how they could go through the notes, they could go through and see like different, whatever the footage or whatever we had, but would they also reach out to you, whoever the lead investigator was, or this person that kind of brought this to the, the group's attention to be like, hey, can you come in here and kind of do a follow-up or just kind of see if they notice anything? Like how good are you at, kind of remembering this stuff or do you even you have to kind of get rehashed on notes and stuff like that? Well, that's a great question. I, I would say uh, to answer the short part of the question is yes. If they reached out to me or one of my detectives, they would go in. And what happens is um, there is a central database. So all the notes, we call it a five. I think they call it a 302 in the FBI. And basically all your notes go into the system. And it's basically like a running diary and a chronology. It's identified by a subject case number and date, and then everything is kind of stamped in there. What happens is from that, the analysts go through that paperwork and they take out the notable pieces, you know, hair color, cars, uh, addresses, associates, phone numbers. You know, one of the things that the NYPD does that's really, really good is they go out and talk to live people. Uh, they don't try and solve a crime from the computer. They actually door knock and they talk to people, multiple people, including the old lady with five cats that sits on the porch in Brooklyn and she's lived there for 45 years because the amount of information that woman has versus going directly to where the incident may or may not have occurred is, is so great and infinitesimal. It's, it's so unbelievable that you can find. And then one of the other things that the NYPD does good, and again, I, I, I'm just speaking, I'm proud of the NYPD. Obviously I have an affection for the NYPD. Um, they, they don't leave any stone unturned. I worked for a really, a uh, crazy guy named David Cohen, 36 year CIA guy. And then also my other boss was, uh, was commissioner uh, Kelly. And, you know, you didn't just sit there and stumble and stutter and say, I don't have that information for you yet because you'd be replaced. So I got to the point where I was not very good at it. And, and I had, thankfully I had some beautiful people around there supporting me that made me look like a superstar too. I knew the who, what, where, when, why, and how as much as possible when that phone call came, because they would call me again. You weren't allowed to turn your phone off. So the phone, the phone was on constantly. And, you know, the mayor's office is calling you. Uh, emergency management's calling you, you know, and you have to have an answer for these people as, as concisely and as, and as accurately as possible. 
And the only way you give can give that answer is if you're at the scene, you know, because otherwise everything else is third party and it's being relayed. And something, as you know, John, always gets lost in the translation. One of the things that I'm in the private security field now, so I travel the world with bands and celebrities doing security. And one of the things I always tell people, if you're in a crowd, just be a good witness. Be, be cognizant of how you came into a venue. Like, where are your exits? Do you see something out of the ordinary? Are you outdoors? It's 70 degrees out. The guy's wearing a furry coat. Like, this is all stuff that you should be aware of and tell different people. I know some people don't really, they just don't think anything of it, which in turn is a whole other issue. But for you to get the confidence to know how to interview someone properly or how to read a situation or how to say you're having a bad day and you still got to do your job or that person's having a bad day and you're trying to do your job, how to read that situation and get the answers you need where you're not making the situation worse. Is that all practice or extensive training on your end, uh, which I assume, especially in a major city like that, the human interaction is the number one deterrent uh, or to help you get answers, correct? Yeah, absolutely. Listen, you, you know, we're talking about interview and interrogation, and it is a perishable skill. Uh, it's very much like a sport. If you don't do it with any degree of frequency, the, the uh, success rate of you going into the box with a bad guy. Now, again, we're talking about terrorism and terrorism-related people. So these aren't shoplifters at Walmart. Some of these people have had formal resistance training. They, they're smarter than you. And again, I always say this to people. If you go into the room and think that you're sm the smartest person in the room, you're going to fail. You're setting yourself up for failure. Was I a good interrogator in the beginning? No, I sucked at it. I really did. Um, I was around some of the most gifted people. And I said, that's what I want to be. I want to be better and get better. And you only get better by failure. There's a lot of failure before you have any success. But once you kind of develop your style and you pick out bits and pieces that work for you, it's like a standard menu that you go to. If he reacts this way or she reacts this way, I'm going to try this. Again, subtlety and, and other things. The other aspect that you mentioned, which is critical, I'm having a bad day or my partner's having a bad day. Well, you got to, you, you know, in the NYPD, generally speaking, and probably in, in, uh, in most law enforcement agencies, when you catch a case and you have a partner, it usually works out that if you're assigned the case that you're going to do the interview or the interrogation. Obviously, if you're having a bad day and, and, and you're going to go in there because your kid is sick or your wife or your husband gave you some static before you got to work, you're probably not the best choice, even though in the thing of rotations, you want to do it and you're convinced yourself. That's when you have to be a, a strong leader and you have to have a great relationship with your partner and say, look, you don't have it today. You can't do this today, please. I'm not saying this because I, I don't like you or I want to jump the shark and do this interview, but your, your head is not in the game and you're doing yourself a disservice. And you have to be big enough and mature enough to accept that. And, and it's got to be a real honest relationship because once you get in there and you lose it, you've given away everything you can in terms of your professionalism and your integrity. And what's happening now is instead of you exploiting the bad guy, he's now exploiting you. It is interesting that you people like yourself would spend all these years and always, uh, whether it's studying, uh, learning, and just trading, right? Because you don't want to lose the tactic. But the bad guys are also doing the same thing. And I find it so interesting that, and I love how you talk about generator uh, repairman stuff in the book, and you can talk about that. But the the bad guys, it's like how tough is it for you, like people that are trying to infiltrate on either side, uh, where like 
how do you one up the bad guy or how does the bad guy one up the good guy? It's like, if you're, if you're always at this level where you're trying to stay ahead of the curve, is there eventually a plateau on either side where it's like the bad guy can't get any worse or the good guy, like how often is technology and human, like, like for me, I'm just like, eventually this has to plateau, right? Yeah. Eventually it plateaus. And, you know, depending on if you're working on the cell and I'm just going to use that, uh, in, you know, in terms of Iraq right. and in Baghdad, you know, a lot of times you get an intelligence package or a targeting package from the, um, from the, the, from the person that created it. And in their mind, they're looking at, you know, signals in the dark. I'm just going to leave it at that. And they've convinced themselves uh, for better, or for worse, that the person that you're going to, you know, snatch from the battlefield is, is part of the hierarchy. Well, you get there and you find out he, he or she is not the, part of the hierarchy. It's actually in inverse order. But again, you're talking about human intelligence versus signals intelligence, worlds apart. And you can't really build a picture. And I always use this example when I'm training and teaching people. I said, you have all this geospatial, you have infrared, you have uh, uh, witness statements and things like that. But do you really have the floor plan of what is inside that house? Do you really know how many people are inside that house what is the actual floor plan? Has it changed? And so the only way you get that is through human intelligence, whether it's through a confidential informant or a source or somebody that you flip. So all the methodologies, not I wouldn't say all, but many of the methodologies and tr traditional law enforcers, which of course I didn't invent, I'm just using them as a tool, uh, applied over in Iraq and, and they work very well. Not a hundred percent. You know, sometimes I walked out of there kicking a garbage can, throwing a garbage can out into the street. I was so frustrated that I couldn't crack this guy. But that's by and large a very small percentage of the success rate. The team that I work with was highly effective. And if it wasn't for the team, um, we would have never survived. We would have never had the effectiveness that we did and take down the biggest targets in, in Baghdad, in Southern Baghdad. One of the, again, one of the other cool aspects you talk about in the book is the idea of a, when a bomb goes off, that I never really looked at it as it's, a, it's an active crime scene that's exponentially so much larger than what it is, whether it comes to the people that saw it or the actual materials used and stuff. If, if you kind of break down that first crime scene, the explosion you see it when you get back to Afghanistan, Iraq, like what's going through your head? Because like, you're, you're going from, I could do everything I kind of did with NYPD or the smaller scale to different country, different language barriers, like a different team. Like what's that thought process for you where you're kind of like, man, this is, this is crazy. Well, a lot of it is, it, it comes back to your training. I went to some extensive training. Uh, I, I've been to Aberdeen, Maryland. You know, we, we blew a lot of things up to, and then reconstructed the scenes. So when you have a job, you know, whatever it is, whatever your job is, if your job is the photographer, that's what you do. If your job is to, to interview people that potentially could have seen the event, what, what did they see prior to the event, after the event? You know, you have to stay in your lane because if you try and do five different things, it's, it's like you're running around like a chicken with your head off, uh, cut off. You know, the, obviously the very stressful factor is, is there a secondary device? You know, because a lot of times that's what the insurgency was doing. So they would draw you in and now everybody's dismounted in there. You know, if this is an open scene that we're looking at uh, on, a, on a public street or in a parking lot or whatever it might be, you know, you're always conscious of that, but at the same time, you can't let that interfere with what you're doing. So process it, get, get as much information, certainly gather up for forensic material and, and get out of there as quickly as possible in one piece. And again, the security cordon, 
what's the crowds, uh, what's the demographics of the crowd? Is the crowd happy to see you or are they upset? Are other first responders coming there from, from uh, the medical uh, emergency services people? You know, there's a lot of things that are going on, but you have to look at what you have to do and just focus on that. But when you come back, I'll be honest with you, you kind of take like a deep breath and you go, what, what the heck just happened? I mean, you know, and you're talking about, for the most part, people are dead. There's nothing left of them but their shoes for the most part. Right. So again, it, it's, it's, it's something that you just deal with and you just keep moving on. For me, that was just the first phase. The second phase, when I got back to the shop, I was responsible for all the evidence processing, bagging and tagging, which as you know, John, could take hours. It could take hours. So first things first for me, I had to write the human report and the interrogation report, depending on what the, what the situation was. Because if I didn't write it right away, by the time three o'clock, four o'clock in the morning rolled around, I wasn't mentally able to write the report because I was just so physically exhausted. Again, I'm 48 years of age at the time that this is going on. Then, the, you know, processing evidence. I mean, I could do that in my sleep. I've done so many bag and tags in the NYPD over the course of 20 some odd years. That was like second nature to me. So that part was easy. But the, the mental focus and the the adrenaline rush and then the adrenaline drop is, is really something else at the end of the day. The idea of intel collection and stopping something before it happens, it's, it's exhilarating for me because the men and women that do this stuff are trying to stop someone like you from coming out there and doing an after action report of an explosion. And so what, I, I mean, I, I hate the politics of it, but an event like Benghazi, uh, and there's been other embassy attacks and stuff like that. Is it frustrating for you from an intel aspect that there are signs and stuff that people higher up wherever don't look at them as you do as boots on the ground to kind of say, well, it might not happen, but you don't really play that game. And so the frustrations, how the, the politics of what you do and what you did, did it any way ever sway to be like, man, what am I actually making a difference? Well, yeah, sure. I mean, listen, you're human, you know, you get frustrated, you're going to get angry. Um, not at the team, of course, you know, the team right. supported each other. And sir, listen, at the end of the day, we're there to do a job where we, we realize we're not going to save the world. But when people intentionally thwart your success, uh, when people, and again, I, I know you know, because you've read the book, when people intentionally compromise the security of the soldier, that's where I get viscerally angry. And I, I was very vocal about that. Um, you know, the politics who knew that people in the military uh, had a political agenda that they wanted to get promoted to, to, you know, from, from Colonel to, to general, you know, so that part is terribly frustrating. Um, again, it's focus, it's adrenaline, but when you're, again, I'm going back to what I said about the, the kids, when you're around these kids and you see how they feel about themselves and how they made a difference that kind of carries you through the day. You're not going to save the world, like I said, but these, these young people, have an energy about them. And again, it's very gratifying as an older person, as an adult, and not, and not that they were, they're not adults, they're just younger people uh, to see that. So it, 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 it is terribly frustrating and challenging, uh, but I, nobody ever threw up their hands and said, I, I, I surrender, I quit. That never happened. When it comes to the idea of the human intelligence, and you talk about this at the time of the book that there's something about going human to human, trying to figure out what they're lying, how they're, they're shaking their lips, their deep gulps and all this stuff, all these indicators versus 
people out there now trying to create new technology to see if someone's lying and all this stuff. It's, I found it really interesting. You're a huge proponent of the human interaction. You can't replace someone like you when it comes to interrogations or interviews. And is it like, I guess, so I guess the question is like, how important today is when it, in terms of training, is it more based on what you do with the human interaction or do they try and, Hey, this technology could be more proficient or it's less of a headache or it's less time and energy. Like what's the, how do you draw the line between uh, the success of the interrogation type stuff? Well, there's no substitute for, for the human interaction, you know, developing a rapport with these people and people would say, well, you want to develop a rapport with somebody that just killed a soldier or killed a cop. I'm like, yeah, I do because I need more information and I got to stuff that all down and, 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 and tamp, uh, temper that with what's the greater good, what needs to be done here. Uh, in terms of technology, um, there's, a million, <laughs> there's a million things out there that people want to sell, you know, the, the, the shiny <laughs> object. I mean, Lord knows the, the, the army bought more shiny objects that did little to nothing in terms of soldier safety. I, that's a whole other issue that I could talk about. Um, but I think people rely heavily on technology. Now, I don't want that to be confused with physical evidence, for example. Correct. You know, you have a videotape of somebody, you know, entering a store, running out of a store or whatever, but you didn't actually see him pull the trigger. You didn't see the car that, that got away. You go out there and you do a canvas and you find out, oh, yeah, there was a blue car and it was it had body damage on the driver's side or, or things like that. Things that you can't get from a video camera, physical evidence, maybe that you can get or whatever. When you go back into the room with this person, of course, you know, they lie, lie, lie. And then little by little, you say, well, can you tell me a little bit about how your day started? And you start chipping away at it with physical evidence and says, you know, is this a picture of you? Because it kind of looks like you. And that kind of looks like this other guy that, you know, and you're really not a bad guy. But this guy, you know, I think he killed that guy in that store. What do you, you know, what are your thoughts on that? And you just kind of work that way with psychological manipulation. Is it is it 100 percent? No, but it's a combination of all things, human intelligence, physical evidence, uh, electronic evidence, and you're trying to collapse this guy and break him down psychologically, or girl. And uh, is it 100%? No, uh, I'm a big proponent, like, I, like you said, I wanna talk to people. That's where I feel I'm best suited at. Technology, you and I were having this discussion before the show. Uh, I suck at that, I'm not good at that. Uh, I need people like my kids to help me uh, just get on a Zoom call. So. But in terms of you know, communication skills and listening skills, I'd like to think that where I was when I first started my police career to where I am now is, is worlds apart. And that's kind of the reason why I started the podcast at the onset of COVID, because as I tour, I love interacting with local security promoters, just different people. I'm a very social person. I love learning and interacting, whether you're in a movie theater or a bar or doing your job. And I felt the for me starting this, this is kind of my way of still maintaining communication with people I don't know or people I do know, just having healthy conversations. And to your point, I feel I've gotten better just because I do it more now. But I love the idea that the you, we always have to keep practicing. We can't, and, it, and I do feel that if you don't talk for a week and you do a presentation, you're not going to be as good as if you practice the whole week before. And I love that you are a proponent of the practice, the interaction of the dealing with people, and you still do it, obviously, through these means or what Newsmax or other stuff you do in a live format where it's one of those things where I don't care if you're in the security world, the military, law enforcement, you can be a chef, a doctor, a teacher, a stay-at-home mom, those social interactions are super important. 
Yeah, I agree. I agree with that. You know, that's that's the one thing that um, I love about New York City. There is every oh. kind of group of people that you can meet. <laughs> and it's fascinating and interesting. And, you know, uh, I, I had friends that, you know, right out of the academy worked at Midtown South, which is Ooh. Broadway and 42nd Street. <laughs> yeah. And, you know, as a, and I didn't get that opportunity. I worked in some of the not so nice places. But toward the end of my career, I ended up working in the 7-6 precinct which uh, had good parts and bad parts. And, and a big part of that community was Italian people. And they're super friendly and they would stop by the precinct and bring food or just have a conversation. And just your daily interactions on the street, you know, it was, it was, it was fantastic. It was by far one of the best places I ever worked. But I mean, I've worked in bad areas and had great relationships with people. I've worked in good areas and had great relationships with people. But I learned a lot too about culture and, and what's appropriate and what's not appropriate. And again, Sometimes it's innocent. You make a mistake, you don't realize, and you learn from that. Hopefully the person that's working with you has more time on the job and more experience, and he shows you a better way of communication. But sometimes that's not always the case. Sometimes the mentors that you get are, are, are not that good. So, and their communication skills are not that good. So you kind of have to really, you know, hope that you're, you're morally grounded, that your moral compass is pointed in the right way. And you realize that you're there to help people. You're not there to change the world. You're there to serve the public. And once that happens, I think you become a better, like I say, a better listener, a better communicator, and a better cop. How important for you is it to have a, a family that supports you doing what you did or still do, or whatever it is in that time frame? Like, are you as successful as you were without that family or that supported home? Like, I can only imagine a lot of the stuff you dealt with and a lot of stuff you can't talk about. You, you needed that assurance at home that, hey, what I'm doing, I'm going to come home to people that love and support what I'm doing, the changes I'm trying to make for the, the world. Yeah, I think that's a great question. Thanks for asking, John. Uh, I have a great wife. I'm married 27 years. I have great kids. I mean, everybody thinks the kids are great, but my kids have never given me an ounce of trouble. Uh, they're all thriving, all college graduates. You know, my kids were very young at the time. I think my daughter was either nine, eight or nine, and my son was like six or seven. And, uh, you know, when you have to leave your kids for 15 months, uh, yeah. it's like somebody pulling your stomach right out of your, out of your body. It's, it's uh, gut-wrenching. <clears throat> but I always knew that and believed that, you know, God had a plan. I was going to make it back and I was going to be okay. And I always knew that my wife, who's really a very tough person uh, uh, mentally in terms of being a, a strong wife and a strong mother for my children, was going to be there 100%. In fact, if my wife was here today, she would tell you, because I had reservations about going, the level yeah, of, of commitment and the time and things like that. She's like, you know, with, with a Marlboro in her hand, she'd be like, this is what you do. I mean, you love doing this and this is what you're good at, you know? So she supported me 110%, but I can, I know to, you know, the question that you're asking, some people don't have that luxury. You know, you right. have, I don't want you to go, or I don't want you to be a cop, or I, I want you home at five o'clock and I want you to pick up the kids from school and take them to ballet and baseball games and things like that. And again, I didn't have that with my wife. I had a real partner. And, and certainly, obviously, if I was able to do it uh, because, because of my schedule and because of when I worked in the intelligence division as, as a sergeant, I had a lot of flexibility in terms of making my own schedule. So I don't want this to be the boo-hoo. You know, I, I didn't get to do what I want to do with my kids. But, you know, there's a sacrifice that everybody makes in law enforcement and in the military, and the sacrifice is real. And without that support, that family support, you start to, you know, you start to go down a rabbit hole and it could be very dangerous for some people. You mentioned the people bringing the static uh, from home to work and all that stuff, but 
and maybe not, maybe I'm not saying this the right way, but I have always found that those people that selfishly and willingly create those issues, especially for the men and women that are in jobs, whether it's doctors, law enforcement, military, that are trying to save or help lives, for you to willingly create that type of tension or drama or that static, as you speak of, I, I don't really sympathize with them. And this isn't a knock on other people whose jobs might, who, hey, someone that is a that creates chalk for Crayola could think they have a stressful job, and maybe they do. But I just don't understand people that, how could you, if, if I was married to you, whoever, and you're like, how could you not support that person 100%? Like, I'm, I'm just draw, blown away that there are people out there that want to create something where you know your husband or wife is going to an active crime scene or a bomb just went off and you're yelling at him because you didn't take the trash out or yelling at her because she was late uh, getting home to cook dinner. It's like this stuff, it's just, it's senseless crap that I, it's cool hearing you talk about that, that the importance of having that and that I wish more people had that type of support system in place. Yeah, I agree with you hundred percent. And again, you know, um, I'm, you know, like I said, I'm blessed that I had that kind of relationship and I, and I'm aware and mindful that other people don't have that relationship. And I, and I also think that sometimes people that don't have that relationship, they do other things, as you say, intentionally go in there with a bad mood and, and, and make the situation worse. Um, Again, you have to have that, that very frank conversation uh, and put, put your arm around your friend, your partner and say, you can't do this today. Not today. It's not, not going to work today. And hopefully they'll be responsive to you. Some of the other self-inflicted things, obviously, you know, marital infidelity, drug use, alcohol use, right. uh, staying out late, not coming home, uh, being angry when you come home and taking it out on your kids. You know, uh, all those things factor in too. And it's just like a cycle. Uh, I'm very, like I said, I'm very blessed. I didn't have that experience, but I'm mindful of that. And I did have seen that in police work and the divorce rate is high. And, and, and the mental stress, and now that it's really coming into the forefront, you know, PTSD is, is real in law enforcement, and it is emotional, and people have to be aware of that. You know, they have to, we have to help each other. We have to lift each other up. With uh, kind of transition to your the actual book now, From Brooklyn to Baghdad, was this something that was on the back of your mind as you got older and started of kind of, I don't want to say retired, because you never really retire, uh, where you're kind of like, man, maybe I need to put my story out there. Uh, like, was there any trepidation on your part putting this out here? Well, you know, just for your audience's benefit, um, the, the short answer is I didn't have trepidation about writing the book, but this was a world that I had no familiarity with. Like, I, I'm, you know, right. I didn't know anything about the publishing or literary realm. And, um, you know, I, I got probably 150, 250 thousand no's before I got a yes, you know, and, and again, it's disheartening because you think that you have a good story and you think it would be a good story, but, you know, depending on who you're pitching it to, they, they couldn't care less about it. So, but I didn't go out with the, with, with the expectation of writing a book, but then what ended up happening was I started seeing all these things that were going on in Iraq. And I was like, I got to write this stuff down because first of all, it was happening so frequently that one story was bleeding into another, especially if it was a cell that we were working on and we were going through the, through the members, that I was like, if I don't write this down, I'll never be able to recall this a year from now or two years from now. So I, I basically started writing a journal that spoke about the actual missions. I haven't 
broken down into the actual missions and the conversations. And, uh, and, and that's kind of like how the process started. When I came home, I would tell the story just like I'm telling you. And people would say, oh, you got to write a book. You got to write a book. And again, I didn't know anything. I didn't know you needed a literary agent and the agent had to represent you to the publisher and you got to write a, 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 a pitch story and all this other stuff. And uh, when that finally happened, again, there's a lot I could say about that industry, but I'll just keep it <laughs> yeah. germane to what I'm talking about. From the time I've actually uh, found somebody that was interested in taking me on as a client, uh, my, my agency is Doug Grad uh, Literary Agency. From the time I first met him to the time the book became a physical property was three and a half years. So if you're in a hurry, and again, that doesn't count the time yeah. that I was trying to sell the book or sell the story. So, you know, I got home in 2009, the, the book was published in 2019. So if anybody wants to do some quick math, it was a, it was about six and a half years that before anything actually got done. And, um, but I, I'm proud of the book. I'm happy that the book got written. Uh, I love coming on shows like yours to, you know, to talk about it and talk about the experience because um, I think when people read it, um, they'll have a better understanding about just how screwed up things were over in Iraq and how things could be better over in, on the war front. Well, and I, thanks to Jason Piccolo, who good friend, I've been on his show, he's been on mine and he does this cool thing where he talks about authors of the books. And that's how I kind of fell on your page and your story. It's like, it's one of those things too, where we laugh at technology. We both think it's, but it, it's, this is like this. It's super cool because I love books. I love the actual, the fact that it's a hardcover. I love the idea of it. I love the smell of it when you go to the bookstore and check them out. But there's, I might not see this book in a, a bookstore. If I'm, if I go into my normal sections or I'm doing my normal thing there, I might not crouch down and see a book like this and let, if it's in a lower shelf. And there's something to, when you read a book like this, it opens up my horizons to how many other authors out there that had a similar story, not necessarily what you did, but their their perspective without the media, without the politics about what's actually happening. It's again, for a book like this to be out there, like this is one of those books I think everyone should read because it's 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 got their, the subtle bits of humor, but it's got your perspective of life as you kind of dealt with the stuff going on in the world in real time. And again, it's just a super rad book. Well, thanks. I, I, I'm, I'm flattered that you would say that, John. I, I'm very grateful for that. And um, I, I, like I said, I'm grateful to be on your show and, and talk about and talk about the book because, I, you know, it's it's really, again, when you have all this delayed gratification and it actually becomes a physical property. I mean, I, I got to do a book launch at a Huntington Book Review, which has since closed its door. And uh, that's like that's like going to Madison Square Garden if you're a sports player. You know, and I was truly humbled. And, you know, you look out at the audience and you see all these people and you see people you haven't seen for over 10, 12 years from the NYPD come. You see people that travel great distances, you know, to support to support you. Uh, it's very humbling and it's very gratifying and it's very emotional. It's one of those things, too, where it's a book like this. If you look out that crowd, you're going to see young, old, black, white, gay, straight, uh, Indian or a guy from Ireland. It's like the impact of a book like this has on humanity itself. It, it's super, it's super rad. I hope like, I, I hope there's more ideas in your head to put more stuff out there or, but for man, it's just a super awesome. It's a great read. But um, I think I already know a bunch of our viewers have already going to pick up the book because uh, I kind of teased you coming on here. 
Um, but uh, no, man, it's, it's just super random. Again, thank you for writing a really cool book. Thank you. Thank you so much, John. I appreciate it. Uh, before I let you go, though, um, I know I was able to pick up a copy uh, through Amazon. I know you sent me a copy. Uh, but if people want to check out what you're doing, I know you're on social media, Instagram. If people want to buy a book, do you want them to go to Amazon? Do you, is there a specific store you want them to go to? Like, how could they get this book in their hands? Yeah, Amazon is probably the easiest way. I mean, this book is, uh, it, it, it should be on the shelves, but it's not always on the shelves. That's a whole other story. We could talk yes. about that online. Uh, as you say, is it on the bottom of the shelf or is it on the top shelf of 100 bestsellers and things like that? It's certainly Amazon, Barnes & Noble. If you have a local bookstore, whether it's Barnes & Noble or, or, or otherwise, if they don't have it, you could ask for it. Uh, if people want to reach out to me on social media, either through Brooklyn to Baghdad or my name, Christopher Strum or NYPD, Sergeant Christopher Strum, I'm accessible and I definitely respond. Uh, I'm, not a tech, I'm not a technical expert on social media. I do my best, but I certainly respond uh, to people that reach out to me. Uh, I, do, do, I do public speaking uh, at corporate events, private events. I'm happy to do that. Happy to get out of the house. I'm sure my wife is very happy about that at the same time. Uh, and I love to talk about the book more. Love to talk about my experiences, both good and bad in the NYPD and, uh, and my experience in Iraq. Awesome. Well, thank you, Christopher, for jumping on here. And uh, we'll have to do this again soon. Thank you so much, John. I appreciate it very much. How's it going, everyone? John here, the host of Spear Talk. You might not know this, but before I record an episode, I like to break a sweat. And I do that using the ChopFit. Over the course of the past year, the ChopFit has allowed me to lose weight, tone up my body, and feel even more amazing about myself. A feeling that you should all feel about yourself as well. If you use this code, SPEARCHOP10, you get $10 off your order. Once again, use code SPEARCHOP10 for $10 off your chocolate order. It'll change your life. Thank you. Come on a journey like no other, where you will discover many roads that will lead you to a happier, healthier, and more stress-free life. And the beauty is, you don't need any vacation time for this adventure. The journey will come to you. Join Avery Rich on your very own journey into yoga. Along the way, she will demystify yoga poses and guide you into a yoga posture or short sequence, all in less than 15 minutes. You have nothing to lose but stress. The Journey Into Yoga podcast. It's not for people who like yoga. It's for people who don't like yoga. Follow or subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Amazon Music, or at AveryRich.com. It is your favorite girl. That's right. It's the Ali Mars. The one and the only. Everyone else just ain't me. I am the host of Welcome to Mars, a lifestyle podcast where nothing is off the table. I have come a long way from sex and dating and have transformed the new vibe to all things lifestyle. We still talk sex, but I'm more interested in the journey, where people have come from, how they made it, and where they're going. Subscribe or follow to a brand new look and a brand new era. Welcome to Mars. Subscribe or follow on Apple, Spotify, Google, or at theallymars.com. Because even with the new look, I'm still that same bitch you love to hate.